Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty then. Today, as we often do on this show, we focus on subject matters that are not always so comfortable, but always end up with a brighter side. And today I'm talking about um, surviving trauma, surviving abuse in early childhood. And my first guest is Dr. Michelle Stevens. She is the author of Scared Selfless, My Journey from Abuse and Madness to Surviving and Thriving. Dr. Michelle Stevens is a psychologist and the founder and director of Post Traumatic Success, a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating and inspiring those affected by psychological trauma. Good morning, Dr. Stevens. Thanks for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Oh, this is this is a pleasure. Let's talk a little bit about your story and how it differs from those that make the headlines, those that we see on TV, and why the contrast is so significant. Sure. Um, so, you know, I was abused, and what you're referring to is, in some ways, my story is similar to a story of, say, uh, the Cleveland girls who were kidnapped, or uh, Elizabeth Smart, or J.C. Dugard. Um, but my story is actually, those are very rare that people are abducted. My story, in some ways, is much more common. I was abused uh, by a man who was my mother's boyfriend. And we moved in with him, and he started abusing me, and then he trafficked me into a child sex ring. Um, and while the abuse that I suffered was probably more severe than most people, being abused is incredibly common. And being abused by someone that you know, by a family member or an acquaintance, is incredibly common. Yeah. And, and let's talk about some of the other common misconceptions about sexual abuse and, and, and the familiarity factor. I think that's very important for us to be aware of. Yes, and that is really one of the things that I want people to understand. You know, 
the good people of society, we all agree that child sexual abuse is a terrible thing. And we all, so many people say to me, well, what do I do to help? What do I do to stop it? And we have to stop the misconception that this happens, because, that monsters are doing this. It's not monsters. Only 10% of child molestation happens from people that you don't know. 90% is people that you know. So it is not monsters who molest children. It is teachers. It is coaches. It is priests. It is fathers. It is uncles. It is your teenage son. Those are the people who molest children. And that's why it's hard to stop because when we see these things and it's happening with people that we know and like, it's very hard to accept that, it, that that's true. Well, when we talk about the um, the perpetrators of, of these crimes, I think we're also talking about perpetrators who are, are wounded. I mean, and, and that's another conversation. But like you say, they're not the monsters. They're the people that we know and love. Yes. And look, there's a lot of research um, on why people molest children or abuse children. Sometimes it's because they're wounded. Sometimes it's because they're sociopaths. Um, there are different reasons, so I don't want to. I don't want to characterize them all as wounded individuals. I think that there are people in this world who are simply sociopaths, and um, and a lot of hardcore pedophiles fall into that group. So, that, which makes them also really skilled con men. Yes, uh, they're very practiced at manipulating other people, and that's why they're hard to catch because they almost always live double lives where they portray themselves to be great guys who absolutely love children. Think of Jerry Sandusky. He's a perfect example. That's the one that just popped into my mind. And, yeah. But when we Career talk about the percentage... like that. Well, the percentage of sociopaths in the world is quite small. But what, what I hear you saying is that they are more likely to manifest in characters like a pedophile. Yes, and they're... It's, it's rather complicated. There are people who are pedophiles who have an absolute sexual orientation towards children. They are going to do a lot of damage. One pedophile, someone like my stepfather or like Jerry Sandusky, they will go out, they will find a job where they're working with kids so they have very easy access, and over the course of a couple decades, they can molest hundreds of children. So you don't have to have a lot of them to do a lot of damage. Um, Then there's a whole different group of child molesters, and those are people who are not necessarily pedophiles, but they molest a child because the opportunity presents itself, and it just seems easy to do. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a different situation. Let's talk about the psychological symptoms of someone who has suffered sexual abuse and why victims usually don't come forward. I mean, there are some obvious reasons, but I think it's it's more complex than just the obvious. Right. Um, and in terms of the symptoms, very important to point out here, the symptoms of all types of trauma are, are the same. So whether you suffered child sexual abuse or some other type of child abuse, whether you were in a domestic violence situation or whether you were a combat veteran, you are going to come out of those situations with similar symptoms. And those symptoms include things like depression, anxiety, PTSD. Some people have dissociative symptoms, um, you know, things like eating disorders usually come out of child abuse. Um, suicidality, things like that. 
So it's very uh, predictable symptoms come out of all types of trauma. And in the case of child abuse, this is an amazing statistic. If you were abused as a child in any way, there is an 80% chance that you will develop at least one psychiatric condition. Mm, 80%. So when we talk about mental illness in this country, so and, and if you're a therapist, you know this. The minute you start doing therapy, practically every person that sits on your couch will come in with some sort of history of child abuse. Um, and it's not that everyone is abused, but it's that it does a ton of damage to the people who are. Oh, it's terrible damage. And I want to uh, just touch upon disassociative identity disorder because people might not know what this is because it, it formerly had another name. And I'd love for you to describe a little bit about it and, and the controversy of it. Sure, sure. So dissociative identity disorder, which is something that I suffer from, is a uh, is a disorder that comes out of severe and repeated child abuse. And what we commonly refer to it as is multiple personalities. So, you know, this is a a great example. People hear about multiple personalities or multiple personality disorder, and all they think about are the wacky symptoms. What people don't realize is those wacky symptoms are the result of child abuse, repeated and severe child abuse. Um, over time creates a situation where the only way that the child can cope is by splitting off their consciousness. It's very similar to highway hypnosis where part of your body stays present and is doing whatever it needs to do, but your mind drifts off. If this happens over and over and over again, then your brain sort of compartmentalizes itself, and that's what multiple personalities are. It's the brain splitting itself off into different parts in order to deal with the abuse. And what's interesting about it, and I, I practice psychology coaching, and, but I am seeing this more and more in my practice. Uh, it's very interesting. And is there an increase of it, or is it has it always been there and no one's talked about it? Yeah, I think the thing with multiple personalities is, it, you know, there are a couple of myths about it. One myth is that the presentation of it, or what we will see, will be incredibly traumatic. People, you know, it'll be like Split or Psycho, where people are wearing wacky costumes and talking in different voices. Terra, the United in, States in, of Terra, right? <laughs> yeah, right, or Sybil, any of these. This is not true in practice, um, and certainly not at the beginning of you knowing about it. Um, it's a very subtle thing at first uh, when people present it to you. And so, so between the fact that people don't know that it's subtle and also, people believe that it's rare. It's not rare. If you do questionnaires, testing for it in the general population, 1% to 3% of the general population is suffering from DID, um, which is more about the same or more than schizophrenia, which we don't think is rare at all. The issue with DID is people don't necessarily know they have it. Part of the disorder is not recognizing that you have the disorder. Mm-hmm. And what is it like to live with it? Explain your experience in the, when you've disassociated. Yeah, it, you know, in the beginning, I, I am pretty much healed now. But in the beginning, it's a very difficult disorder to live with, mostly because of the memory loss. The, the biggest, um, the most important thing about, about multiple personalities is not the different personalities. It is the fact, because we all have that, right? We're different at work than we are with our kids, than we are out with our friends. We all have this thing of having different sort of personalities. 
in the disorder, those personalities all have different memory systems that are cordoned off mm-hmm. in the brain. So when I am one person, back in the day, not now, back then, when I was one personality, I had a complete, completely different memories than when I was a different personality. And so I would have amnesia when I switched personalities for whatever I was doing. So that was incredibly difficult. And, you know, you find ways to deal with it. And people initially do not realize they have the amnesia. It's called amnesia for the amnesia. So you don't know. But talking to people, they would tell me that I was incredibly forgetful, that you get the reputation for being scatterbrained or forgetful. Um, But it's scary. It's very scary to sometimes not know what you were doing, to, to suddenly switch personalities and you're somewhere and you don't know how you got there. It's terrifying. We're going to need to go to a break. Um, but before we do, I want to just mention one thing about seeking safety, because I think that um, part of what happens in this disassociative identity disorder is is that we're seeking to make ourselves safe when we've been compromised and, and, and those memories are triggered and then we go, go off and sort of compartmentalize as you say, but let's talk more about it after we come back from the break. I'm talking with Dr. Michelle Stevens. She is the author of the book, scared selfless, my journey from abuse and madness to surviving and thriving. You can learn more at scaredselfless.com. You can find Michelle Stevens at Dr. M Stevens and on Facebook, Michelle Stevens, PhD. Here come those tunes. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Before we head out to that break, I want to talk about how happy dogs can make us. Here's a fact. Pets are good for our health. Petting them relaxes us. It can lower our blood pressure. And they're also great fun and contribute to our happiness. I don't have a pet right now. I've got teenagers, but I am about to become a doggy grandma when my daughter adopts a rescue this summer. I'm welcoming the doggy addition to our family with treats from BarkBox. BarkBox delivers a monthly themed box of curated, paw-picked North American natural treats and innovative toys crafted by small and local businesses you might not normally be able to find. These will fill your four-legged friends with big joy, and 100% of BarkBox products are animal tested and approved. BarkBox promises to deliver products that will keep your pooches engaged, interested, and happy. Scout's honor, if your dog does not like something in that box, BarkBox will send you something they will love for free because BarkBox is all about dog happiness. Give a gift that keeps on giving for your special someone who has a prized pooch. Whether it's your kid, parent, friend, or coworker. BarkBox is the perfect present for all the dog people in your life. Treat them to a BarkBox subscription that will make their four-legged furry friend feel like the happiest dog on earth. So jump on over to BarkBox.com happiness and get a free extra premium toy added to your BarkBox every month when you subscribe to a 6- or 12-month plan. And then select Yes, Please when asked, Have a Playful Pup. Once again, visit BarkBox.com slash happiness and answer yes, please, when asked, have a playful pup. Now here come those tunes. We'll be back in a flash. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. 
Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. We're talking about a very delicate subject today, and that is um, the journey from abuse and madness to surviving and thriving. The book is Scared Selfless, and the author and my guest is Dr. Michelle Stevens. Dr. Stevens, before the break, we were talking a little bit about DID and um the mechanism for self self protection and self care that is triggered by it. I'd like you to just talk a little bit about a little bit more about that, and then let's talk about your own memories and how they came flooding back um, to you. Sure. Yes, and and dissociative identity disorder is absolutely a protective mechanism. I get very upset when people say that it's controversial or when it gets portrayed as. Um, as something, I think that people are very unkind when it comes to multiple personality disorder because they forget it's caused by really severe childhood abuse. And small children are being repeatedly abused, often tortured. It comes out of very severe abuse. And in order to deal with that, they have to find ways to sort of turn their minds off. Um, you know, and so that is how the brain develops. It's almost brain damage that um, is caused by the trauma. And then as you grow up, you're absolutely right. As these memories get triggered, we, we often, I, I often would switch, right, in order to not face these horrible memories and the feelings that came with them. And so that's what DID is. It is an affliction of abuse. Yeah. And in your own case, you had unconsciously repressed these memories for many years. And what happened that opened, yeah. and, that and, opened and it, it up Every to person you. with DID does that. That's part of DID is repressing the memories. Um, that's what, it, what it's all about. Um, yes, yeah, so growing up because of the repressed memories, had you asked me when I was 12 years old and in a child sex ring if I was being abused, I would have said no. I'm not. That's how good my brain was at protecting myself from that. When I was about 22 years old, 
I finally was able to get away from my abusers. I moved 3,000 miles away. I changed my identity. And once I felt safe that they couldn't get to me, I started to actually remember the abuse that I had suffered. Mm. So in a sense, it's uh, once there's a safe harbor, that's when this comes to the forefront. Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, you know, and the times in my life where memories came back, are, are, it's uh, sort of uh, very common. I, when I got away from the abuser, memories started coming back. That's very common. When my abuser died was another time that memories came flooding back to me because I finally felt safe to be able to remember things. And obviously you chose to become a psychologist, and I say obviously and I shouldn't suppose, but because you were A, healing yourself, but B, wanted to make a difference and help others who had gone through the same thing. Absolutely. It started because in trying to heal myself, good helpers and so part of my journey of trying to heal myself was to understand all of this i started reading everything i could find about psychological trauma and child abuse and finding out what these things do to a person and so even before i ever started graduate school i had already become an expert in psychological trauma and once i was healed i really wanted to use that expertise and my own experience to help other people so i went to back to school and got a phd and in addition to the PhD, you've done something which I think is um, which is really wonderful, and that is to create a nonprofit to serve on another level. So it's not just working with clients on a one-on-one basis, but serving the greater good through education. And with your nonprofit post-traumatic success, you've chosen to to help educate, to help support others and the loved ones of those who have been abused. Talk a little bit about what you do at the nonprofit. Yes. Yeah. You know, I spent about 10 years working um, in private practice and trying to help people. And then I sort of naturally decided that I wanted to help people on a grander scale. And I have a mission. The mission is to educate survivors of any kind of trauma about psychological trauma, as well as their loved ones, because, you know, it's really helpful if the people who love someone who's been through trauma can understand the symptoms and what it does to a person. So I wanted to educate the public, I wanted to help survivors, and I very much wanted to inspire survivors and let them know it is absolutely possible to overcome this and to heal. And so that is the work of my book, and that is the work of my charity, Post Traumatic Success. I I love the name, by the way, Post Traumatic Success, because it's just kind of, you could miss it if you're not paying attention. Let's talk about trauma from a different perspective, and this is one that I use as a strategy in my own work, and that is that post-traumatic stress is the body and the brain's normal response to abnormal amounts of stress. Correct. It's normalizing it. Yeah. The the diagnostic manual, when they first wrote the diagnosis for post-traumatic stress disorder, which was in 1980, they said that it was due to um, unusual causes. um, And they had to take that out because we know now trauma and abuse is actually all too usual. It, uh, it, It happens to nearly everyone. But the stress it creates on the body is unusual. 
And so the body has mechanisms to deal with fear. I mean, that's really what we're talking about here. When we talk about trauma, we are talking about fear. When we are afraid for our lives, a predictable response occurs in our body. We have the fight or flight response. It fills our body with stress hormones so that we can either fight or flee. Yeah. When you can do neither, then this is when a problem occurs. We become paralyzed often, and we have to find ways for our mind to try to escape if we can't physically escape. And that's really what we're talking about when we talk about trauma. And for those of you who are listening that are saying, well, you know, I've never really had trauma. I'm, I'm, I, let, let's talk about some very common traumas that are often overlooked. Divorce, mm-hmm. you know, a, medi- a medical crisis. I mean, these are uh, to, uh, much lesser trauma than being abused. But nonetheless, the brain does not recognize once it's been triggered, it doesn't know the difference. Right. Yes. And particularly in childhood, and this is something that people don't understand always, you know, physical abuse and sexual abuse, obviously, most people now understand that that is damaging. Growing up in a house where there is a lot of either fighting or violence, um, being the child of a messy divorce, being a child in a household where there's alcoholism or drug addiction, feeling abandoned as a child. You know, we often have situations where one parent just sort of takes off and you never hear from them again. These are all very, very traumatic um, during a critical period of development in a human being's life. And so people do develop traumatic symptoms from that. Let's um, turn the conversation a little, little bit to where you are now. You've written this incredibly courageous and wonderful and helpful book. You've got the nonprofit that is helping others and the loved ones of those who have suffered from post-traumatic stress heal and, and, and move into successful lives. What about your own life? You have a family. You're, you've created something beautiful I really, you know, I am so incredibly blessed now. And had you asked me at, you know, 22 when I was first having all of these memories of abuse, if I would be where I am now, uh, I, I could barely conceive it. But I did have that as the plan. That was my goal, to get to the point where I was fully healed and happy. I made a decision very early on that I was not going to let my abusers ruin the rest of my life that I was not going to choose to be self-destructive and do more damage to myself than they had done. I was going to try to be self-constructive. And with that intention, over time, it really bore out. I, I lead a tremendously wonderful life today, filled with love and fun. And, you know, I, I'm even now grateful for the abuse that happened because it helped me find my purpose in life. I feel so moved and honored to be able to help others. And so having been abused was, in a strange way, a blessing because it forced me to learn about these issues and to develop empathy and to get well. And now I use that to help others. Well, you know, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, when, you, when we look at the adversity in our lives with a smile and with gratitude, I think that is the hallmark of post-traumatic growth. Yes. And, and there is a lot of research to support that. You know, I hate it when, look, it is important to have studies that tell the truth, which is that trauma is damaging. But I don't like it when people get stuck there. 
it is damaging, dot, 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 but it also (laughs) can be incredibly empowering. And so that is my message. It is a message of hope. You know, a lot of people, it's hard. I'm not saying it's not hard, but it's not impossible. And there is such value in caring about yourself enough to say, I am going to work hard to heal from this. Dr. Michelle Stevens, thank you for spending time with me talking about the resiliency of the human spirit, the resiliency of your spirit. Your book, Scared Selfless, My Journey from Abuse and Madness to Surviving and Thriving. To learn more, please visit scaredselfless.com. You can find Dr. Stevens at Dr. M. Stevens and on Facebook, Michelle Stevens, Ph.D., Thank you, Dr. Stevens, for being my guest today. Here come those tunes. We will be right back. Wait, wait, wait. Before we go to break, I want to mention something really important about perspective and clarity. Seeing the world clearly and crisply makes me happy. Fashion also makes me happy. And looking good makes me feel even better. I've been wearing Warby Parker's vintage-inspired contemporary reading glasses for years to help me see better when I read and write. Check out Warby Parker's online showroom where you can order up your own personal and free home try-on experience of up to five pairs of fashionable frames. That's right, Warby Parker wants you to experience the look, feel, and design of its wide variety of styles from the comfort of your own home for free. Recently, I got to experience Warby Parker's simple, free, and convenient home try-on program and found it fun and easy to shop for the stylish looks I like. I loved being able to try before I buy, and I appreciate the high-quality materials and design integrity of each pair. Personally, I'm a huge fan of the Laurel, Chelsea, and Upton. And here's another thing I really love about Warby Parker. They believe everybody has the right to see, and for every pair of glasses you buy, they distribute a pair to someone in need. So jump on over to warbyparker.com slash happiness to set yourself up for a hands-on home experience of fun with five pairs of glasses for five days for free to see which ones you like. Then make them your own by buying them online as readers, prescription, or sunglasses starting at $95, including your prescription lenses with anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. Warby Parker will send you a fresh pair and also makes it easy to coordinate your doctor's prescription. Return your try-on box within five days for free and wait for your new retro, cool, and hip shades to arrive. It's that fun, quick, and easy. Order up your own personal in-home eyeglass fashion show today and begin building your eyeglass wardrobe over at warbyparker.com slash happiness. Once again, that's warbyparker.com slash happiness. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. 
When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. My guests today are authors and sisters, Regina Calcaterra and Rosie Maloney. And we're talking about Girl Unbroken, a sister's harrowing story of survival from the streets of Long Island to the farms of Idaho. Regina Calcaterra is the best-selling author of Etched in Sand, the memoir of her childhood growing up in numerous foster homes, homeless shelters, and on the streets, all while trying to protect and keep her siblings together. Regina uh, graduated from State University of New York at New Paltz in 1988 and in 1996 obtained her Juris Doctorate while attending law school in the evenings at Seton Hall University of Law. Rosie Maloney is a 1996 graduate of Idaho State University at Pocatello with a bachelor's degree in sociology and an associate's degree in criminal justice. Currently, she is an account executive at First Digital Telecom in Salt Lake City, Utah. Rosie began her commitment to volunteerism as a teenager in Idaho. During her very dark and difficult childhood, it was clear to Rosie that the act of giving to others and helping others creates a light that shines on all of us. Good morning and welcome, Regina and Rosie. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Lisa. It- Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. And these are very difficult topics to talk about. And I know that this is a show about happiness. And we always talk about it not being focused on the annoying yellow smiley face. And when, in fact, we're really talking about finding some level of joy, normalcy, and balance after very bad things have happened. And I think your book, Girl Unbroken, A Sister's Harrowing Story of Survival from the Streets of Long Island to the Farms of Idaho, talks to us on this level. Tell us a little bit about the book. Um, the book begins, uh, Girl and Broken begins, where my sisters had been shielding me for the first part of our lives, and me being the baby for um, out of the five siblings, we were eventually separated into a foster home. And Norm and I were in one foster home where G and Camille were in another. And then uh, my mother kidnapped us, after being um, acknowledged that there was abuse in the foster home because she, for some reason, thought that she should be the only one that abuses us. And so she kidnapped us, um, had taken us to Idaho, where she had continued her behaviors of drinking and um, self-prescribing, her uh, abusing of alcohol and drugs, and then, of course, abusing us children. And prior to that, when my sisters were shielding me, the abuse had gone to all of us siblings, all of the girl siblings, except once we were in Idaho, it was funneled to me exclusively. And so once she found her uh, soon-to-be husband, then it was both of their abuses upon me. And um, it was the challenges and 
um, of getting through it through the darkest period of my life and then pulling myself up and out with um, the positive role models of the educators, librarians, guidance counselors um, that were there to help me in those uh, positive influences. I'm sorry, I'm just going to jump in here and just clarify one thing about the, the, the foster system and what it is designed to do. The foster system is designed to shelter a child from an abusive situation. Yes, this is Regina jumping in. Um, when when um, Rosie was in a fo- her foster home at that time, it was a different era. It, it was in the 1980s, and we grew up in, in and out of foster care in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And at that time, they didn't necessarily have really thorough background checks on foster parents. So although some of our foster parents were fantastic and very loving, other foster parents were horrible and inflicted abuse upon us because of that time. Now, this day and age, there's a very thorough background check on foster parents. And although there are some that fall through the cracks, that even though you may check on them, that they don't start showing their behaviors until after the children's in the home, most children are not going to be subjected to the behaviors that they were at that time. Understood. Understood. A very good point of clarification. But let's talk a little bit about what brought the two of you to collaborate and then go back to talking about mental illness and the abuse and the correlation between the two and how the cycles have been broken. Certainly. Oh, that, that's so many good things that, that, that you're asking us to share. So we love talking about the positive and, and our outcomes. Several years ago, this is Regina, I published my memoir, which is called Etched in Sand, which described the story of my siblings and I and how we lived on the fringe of society on Long Island in the middle of a suburban community, how our mother was drug and alcohol addicted and she was mentally ill and she abandoned us in all these different places and she just abandoned us for weeks. So we as little kids had to figure out how we were going to survive on our own and one of the things that we needed to do was steal food to eat. So Etched in Sand shows the story of these kids who lived on the fringe of society and how we pulled ourselves up and out of that. So it's very, it's, it's, it has themes of optimism and perseverance and resilience. But what happens at a certain point, as Rosie has mentioned, but this is where, and this is where Girl Unbroken starts, is that when we were placed in our last foster home, I was put in one foster home with my older sister, Camille. Rosie was put in her foster home, another foster home with, with our younger brother, Norman. And my mother went to that foster home and kidnapped them out of that foster home and brought them to Idaho. So in Etched in Sand, which was a New York Times bestseller, so we have lots of readers, everyone was worried about, after reading the book, what happened to Rosie? Because I didn't tell Rosie's story in Etched in Sand because it wasn't my right to tell her story. So after Etched in Sand was published several years ago, readers for years wanted to know what happened to Rosie. So Rosie took a look at that as an encouragement to tell her story, but she also saw how Etched in Sand actually impacted the lives of many people who read it for a variety of different of, of, you know, aspects, and that's when she realized that maybe if she tells her story, because her story, even though she, our stories are similar, they're different, that maybe if she tells her story, that it could also impact others as well, and that's how we ended up collaborating on um, at, um, Girl and Broken, and which was released last week, and that's why we're here today to talk about it and all the great outcomes that came from it. Wow, that is fascinating. So Rosie was the character uh, from Etched in Sand that didn't develop further after you were brought to Idaho. Yes, um, that is the that's where Girl and Broken begins. And so the character of 
Rosie really comes out through all the trials and tribulations and um, and really understanding the darkness that encompasses her throughout this whole thing because really it was there was so much shielded and not put in but um, but there's so much I mean and really in a life that's had 17 years of darkness and abuse from both the stepfather and the biological mother um, it's just monumental the challenges that can come with it no doubt and I'd love for Rosie for you to talk a little bit about the challenges and the breaking of that cycle I mean you are a very powerful woman today and no doubt that is the gift and one never wants to call the bad things that have happened to us gifts but if we are lucky we do get some gifts there is a silver lining that comes from these challenges absolutely and you know that's a great point because really in sharing my views um it's been so empowering to me because now it has taken the power away from the predator which was my stepfather and um my biological mother right now and it gave it back to me so it gave me back my voice that um knew that i could do anything and and now that I have three kids and I'm parenting them the way that I thought I should be parented when I was a kid, which is just with love and structure and guidance and and just the unconditional love, it's, it's, it's huge. But it was a very dark process in the middle of it. Yeah. And, um, but luckily there's resources available that were there for me and, uh, and I utilized them and took advantage of every option available at my hands. We are going to go to a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue the discussion with the authors of Girl Unbroken, a sister's harrowing story of survival from the streets of Long Island to the farms of Idaho. To learn more, please visit www.reginacalcatira.com. On Twitter, those uh, handles are at rcalcatira and at Rosie. Two, and that's the number two, Maloney. And on Facebook, that page is Girl Unbroke. Here come those tunes. We will be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. And other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at Shop Happy at HarvestingHappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. 
Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast because we are talking about a subject matter that is not generally happy, tidy, or uh, fun to talk about, but yet it's necessary. When we talk about bad things that have happened and how we're able to transform those experiences to create a life of meaning, of substance, and of joy after the storm. We're talking with the authors of Girl Unbroken, a sister's harrowing story of survival from the streets of Long Island to the farms of Idaho. My guests are Regina Calcaterra and Rosie Maloney. And prior to the break, we were talking about Girl Unbroken and Rosie's story, which picks up actually where Regina's best-selling book, Etched in Sand, has left off. And the ladies have come together to collaborate, which I think is very heartwarming, not just from a professional aspect, but you, you were foster sisters, yes? Yes, we were. We, um, we, we we were born to the same mother, so so we all have a biological connection. Although we have different fathers, and this is Regina. Ah, okay. I'm sorry. I misunderstood. I thought that this was a it was foster sisterhood, but this is biological sisterhood. Got it. Yes, biological. We had the same mom, but we had five different dads. So, and our dads didn't stick around after we were born. So, what connected us was our mother, although she was mentally ill and and abusive, abusive and abandoned and neglected us. It was the siblings that that kept our family together. It was all five of us that created our own family unit. But sometimes we were placed in foster homes and we were separated at that time. Um, so that's where the, the issue of foster care comes in. But we're actually, we're biological sisters. So our story, story began um, right after Rosie was born because she's six years younger yes. than me. I see. Talk a little bit about your birth mom's mental illness, because I think this is really important to talk about that. Oftentimes, um, there is mental illness that exacerbates the conditions of abuse and the degradation of the family unit. Certainly, this is Regina again. Our mother was mentally ill, and we were born to her in the 1960s and 1970s. And at that time, people with mental illness didn't necessarily seek out assistance, and it wasn't readily available, and people weren't so willing to acknowledge it. So all of that applied to our mother. So she self-medicated through drugs and alcohol, which definitely incited that mental illness as well. And later on in life, she was diagnosed to be bipolar, but that was well after she she did the damage that she did to us, um, which of course was limited because because we all pushed through it. But it was that mental illness that actually led to her abandoning us and, and abusing us. And um, for her, she wasn't rational in the things that she was doing and, and um, as she was raising five children. So it had. Um, a traumatic impact upon all of us in different ways. But what's interesting, what I hear from the two of you as you talk is a compassion and empathy for this person, for your mom, and in, in so much as that you recognize that there was an illness. You know, so often we um, are so angry and hold grudge and are unforgiving or unyielding towards the abuser. And what I'm hearing is not the case. 
Well, t- to be honest, as the older sister, I am unforgiving of what my mother did to Rosie. So um, that's something that I've never been able to forgive her for. But we understand where this all started, and it started from cycles of abuse in her family. Her parents abused her. She abused us. There was no effort to ever cut that cycle. And then when you're dealing with someone who is mentally ill and is not properly um, getting the proper medication on top of that, mix in um, physical abuse and sexual abuse and drugs and alcohol, it just exasperates it a little bit more. So as a compassionate adults, we understand where this began, but at a certain point, she, she could have also tried to stop it, just like the five of us and the next generation, all five of her children, did not continue that cycle. And there is mental illness in our family because it, it is passed down, but it's a decision whether or not we're going to address that or not for ourselves. We don't have to have that inflicted upon our children. I mean, the damage that comes from not um, working through your own mental illnesses. And this really is where um, choice and, and, and nurturing comes in, because if we are predisposed to mental illness or addiction or a whole host of other bad things that happen in our human nature, the uh, awareness to break those cycles is is key. But you're also looking at five siblings that collectively came together, formed its own successful family unit out of necessity it was for survival and i think it it trumps the the power of what mom did i mean you broke the cycle just by banding together and creating some level of a healthy model between the five of you and the resources you were able to seek out absolutely um this is rosie and um it certainly gained it helped us with perspective because when we were together we were strong we were a great bond and my sisters had shielded me for such a long time however once we were separated and I all that abuse was inflicted upon me it was it was really hard because seeing your mom your biological mom treat you this way it's so it's so disturbing and especially being a mom now of three wonderful kids all I can see is wanting my kids to be loved and cared for as I wanted to be. And so going through that transition of the darkness and the abuse of, and making sure all those positive influences, and I worked through that. And then after being diagnosed with bipolar disorder myself, now I know that there's a way to, after um, working with a doctor, getting prescription medication properly, finding something that's manageable, eating right, sleeping, um, a balanced life is, is important and educating yourself and knowing that there's resources out there to pull you up and out and to give you the options for a, a manageable a life that's, that a diagnosis like that isn't a sentence. It's a liberation for me and, and I think for others as well because that's just one more thing that you had to compile on top of the abuse of 17 years of abuse not to mental the not to mention the mental anguish that continued but working through that and then still being a functioning parent and a college graduate it's, it was it's huge huge it, it, it is a triumph and uh, the courage to speak about this i think really um, speaking about what many of us consider the unspeakable is part of the medic medicine you know it is what heals having that conversation realizing that we are not alone or we don't need to be alone 
this, this is Regina. Um, when Rosie and I embarked on writing her story together, um, as her older sister, you know, I was apprehensive about what it is that we should share. I, I, I was very protective of her. And she pushed through, and there were certain things she wanted in the book that I was a little bit nervous about her disclosing. So it was just because I'm the older protective sister. And um, so it was wonderful as we started writing her story more and more how much she just grew by it, and she owned it and was empowered by it. And one of the things she did want to raise, which is the end of the, we raise at the end of the story because this is not what the story is about, but she did want to bring awareness to the fact that she was diagnosed with bipolar because, like she said, as soon as she was figured, we figured out that that was what the issue, she was just able to get the right medicine and move forward and have a productive life. So A Girl Unbroken has a variety of different messages of resilience, of optimism, of tenacity, and most importantly, of how adults who are not a parent to a child in need, but just adults in that child's life, whether they're a teacher, a librarian, a school counselor, or a parent of a friend, can actually have a tremendous long-term impact on the life of a child in need. And so it has multiple messages, and, but all of it is about looking forward and trying to, as, as you had said earlier, um, push through to your post-traumatic growth. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Joseph Campbell talks about this being, you know, the hero's journey. You know, I liken to what both of you have been on as these personal hero's journeys uh, through which you've been triumphant. I want to just mention um, something about safe spaces and about attachment and about how we rely on our parents or our caregivers from an early age to create that base for us and when that is compromised the damage that that can cause this is rosie and in regards to the safe spaces it's it's interesting how parents have such a have such an impact in a child's life to develop that safe place for a child yet when they don't create it and they and amongst their place that they inhabit along with their kids turns abusive and so dark, it's no longer safe. So your home environment for 18 hours a day is no longer a safe place. So for the six hours in the day that they're at, when a student is actually in school, they can actually have that be their safe place because they're in the hands of, as Regina said, the educators, the librarians, the guidance counselors, the crossing guards, the lunchroom workers, the janitorial staff. Those are those moments in time that a child is before them that they can actually have an impact on those children. And my survival was based on those small little gestures, those small kind gestures, and, and that helped me pull through the darkness that I was facing. And so um, those safe places are so imperative for children to have, whether it's, and you hope that it's their home environment. You hope the home is a safe place. But more often than not, when a child is abused, and, and most of the time teachers and educators don't know what those darkness, those, the, the chaos that a child has to face when they come home for this 18 hours, they just know that the six hours that they have in their, in their attention, they can make the positive impact. impact. Because as Etch and Sand and Girl Unbroken, the resonating story within those two are how those positive people helped us so much and gave us the foundation that we needed to pull through. And this is Regina. So although our safe space wasn't a physical space, it was actually the presence being before um, an adult who positively impacted us. It was transformed into that. 
Beautifully said. We are out of time, ladies. I want to uh, send our listeners over to Regina's website, www.reginacalcaterra.com. On Facebook, those handles are at rcalcaterra and at Rosie, the number two, Maloney. And on Facebook, jump on over and visit Girl Unbroke. It's an abbreviated part of the title of the book, which is Girl Unbroken, A Sister's Harrowing Story of Survival from the Streets of Long Island to the Farms of Idaho. Thank you to my guests and co-authors, Regina Calcaterra and Rosie Maloney. Thank you for being with us and sharing your heartfelt and um, deeply courageous stories. And, and thank you so much. And I, this is Regina. I just want to mention that Rosie has her own website, and it's girlunbroken.com also. Oh, perfect. Even better, girlunbroken.com. We'll send everybody over there. That's Thanks, perfect. ladies. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. And here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Michelle Stevens, Regina Calcaterra, and Rosie Maloney wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.